Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. You have to take me to shore. According to the code of the order of the president. Your return to shore was not part of our negotiations nor our agreement, so I must do nothing. And secondly, you must be a pirate for the pirate's code to apply, and you're not. And thirdly, the code is more what you call guidelines than actual rules. Welcome aboard the Black Pearl. The Supreme Court's new ethics code is sort of like the Pirates Code, more guidelines than actual rules. For the first time in its history, the Supreme Court has adopted a code of conduct, responding to pressure from a stream of ethics controversies that have undercut its public standing and shown a light on the justices' friendships and financial dealings. But the code won't necessarily mean any changes in the way the nine justices conduct themselves. In fact, the justices basically admit that in the introduction, saying for the most part, these rules and principles are not new. Joining me is constitutional law scholar David Super, a professor at Georgetown Law. Is anything different for the justices today than last week because of this ethics code? This is an astute PR move. That's all it is. Well, there have been a number of disclosures of extremely questionable activities by several justices, most prominently Justices Thomas and Alito, receiving valuable trips, other financial favors from rich, ideologically committed donors, many of whom have business in front of the court. So the court, I think, felt that it needed to do something There were justices calling for an ethics code, and my assumption is that the compromise they reached between no ethics code and an ethics code was something that is in name an ethics code, but that has few, if any, of the functions of an ethics code. In the statement of the court that precedes the code, there's a little bit of griping about this misunderstanding that justices regard themselves as unrestricted by any ethics rules. Go figure. And it says the court has long had the equivalent of common law ethics rules derived from a variety of sources, including statutory provisions, the code that applies to other federal judges, ethics advisory opinions, and historic practice. Does that statement mean that these are the same rules that Justice Clarence Thomas, for example, followed in accepting all those luxury trips, the underwriting of the RV, etc.? The fact that he did that and that there has been no action about that on the court suggests that this so-called common law ethics rules are largely useless if any judge on a lower court had done this, they would be facing serious problems. There's no enforcement mechanism at all in these rules. So the public can file a complaint or a review of alleged ethics breaches. 
That's correct. The failure of this code is twofold. One, its content is extraordinarily weak, and second, there is no procedure for enforcing it. It is certainly true that the Supreme Court is not and should not be subject to the executive branch or the legislative branch, but it could set up its own enforcement mechanism. It could, for example, have a process for people to file complaints, have an office that investigates those complaints and makes recommendations to the court, and a procedure for the court itself to act on these matters. It could also have a procedure where a justice's behavior is particularly problematic of referring that information to Congress, which does have the power to begin impeachment proceedings. What happens if a lower court judge or an appellate judge violates the Code of Ethics? Someone complains that they violated the Code of Ethics. What happens then? There are a number of things that can happen. They can be removed from the case that causes the problem against their will by the chief judge of their court or by uh, other judges on the court if they are themselves the chief judge. They can be investigated and potentially sanctioned for uh, unethical conduct, and the matter can be referred to Congress for impeachment proceedings, and Congress does impeach lower court judges. There have been a lot of complaints about the justices not recusing themselves in cases where it seems like they should. So when it comes to recusals, the justices include a line that's not in the Code of Conduct for United States judges. It says, quote, the rule of necessity may override the rule of disqualification. Tell us what they mean by that. What they are basically saying is that even if they have a conflict of interest or some other compelling reason why they shouldn't sit on a case, that the desirability of having nine justices sit on a case may justify disregarding that conflict of interest. The rationale is that while we have many lower courts and many lower court judges, and most lower courts don't sit as a complete body ever, the Supreme Court is unique, and if you have a decision rendered by less than all of the justices, it may not get five votes for any result, and that leaves the state of the law uncertain. That's a problem the Supreme Court has dealt with many times over the years when justices have properly recused themselves for any number of reasons, and occasionally it does create hiccups in the law or uncertainties. But the same thing can happen when all nine justices sit and they can't agree on any one resolution to a case. So this is not a huge problem, but it does signal a lack of seriousness about ethics. Also, better to have a hiccup in a case than to have a justice sitting who should be recused. Also, while lower court judges are told they, quote, shall disqualify when their impartiality might be questioned, the justices change the word shall to should disqualify. So are their rules for recusal less stringent than the rules that they set out for lower court judges? Yes, they are. Indeed, the word shall does not appear anywhere in their code. It appears several places in the code for lower court judges, but nowhere 
in this new code for the Supreme Court. So they've chosen not to live by the standards they impose on lower court judges. The standards they impose on lower court judges are appropriate. I wouldn't want to see them loosened, but it's telling that they're unwilling to live by the same standards themselves. So let's take the major tax code case that's coming up where Justice Alito was interviewed a friendly interview for the Wall Street Journal by one of the lawyers. Under this code, should Justice Alito recuse himself from that case? The code is rather vague. I think as a matter of common sense, Justice Alito absolutely should. He was under public criticism, and this attorney gave him help in defending himself against that public criticism, which is a very valuable thing. If I was being criticized the way Justice Alito did, I would prefer that friendly interview to $100,000. So it is giving a justice something of great value as a case that's involving you is going in front of the court. It seems obvious he should accuse himself, but the code is so vague that it certainly does not compel him to do so and provides no means for the public to complain if he doesn't do so. Individual justices decide whether or not they should recuse themselves. Couldn't they have put a mechanism in where at least it has to be discussed with the rest of the court? They certainly could, and there's a precedent for this. In Justice William O. Douglas's last years on the court, the other justice concluded that his mental capacities had decayed too much for him to cast the deciding vote on cases, so they all agreed they would not decide a case where his vote was crucial. They proceed normally where his vote didn't matter, but he would never be allowed to be the fifth vote on a case. Uh, And that was agreed to by the liberal justices, Brennan and Marshall, as well as the conservative ones. That same approach could be handled here. You could say that if a justice insists on sitting on a case where that justice is compromised, the other justices can act to reject the case, to cancel the court's grant of review in the case. What does the code say about the acceptance of gifts? The code is very vague about that as well. It says that the justices shouldn't accept gifts or should not participate in matters where their impartiality would be compromised. But it leaves them to decide whether their impartiality is compromised. I could ask you about the merits of Bloomberg, and you could say, well, I think I've got a completely unbiased opinion. You could ask me about the merits of Georgetown. I could say, well, I have a completely unbiased opinion. But allowing people to decide that for themselves is contrary to the whole purpose of ethics rules. Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, I'll continue this conversation with Georgetown Law Professor David Super. Does this code of conduct provide any more transparency into an institution that's been shrouded in secrecy? The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. I've been talking to Professor David Super of Georgetown Law School 
about how this new code of conduct will affect the actions of the justices, if at all. Would this code have prevented the conservative justices from attending that Federalist Society gala last week that was headlined by Justice Amy Coney Barrett? No, it doesn't prevent much of anything, and it certainly wouldn't prevent that. I mean, a gala like that is raising money for an organization that is pursuing a litigation agenda before the court that is directed at the court. So you are helping fund one side of many cases that you will be hearing. That would seem to be entirely inappropriate. We wouldn't want a judge to be making contributions to the lawyers on either side. And being a headliner at a gala and boost ticket sales has the same effect. Transparency. So the court has always been shrouded in secrecy. The public doesn't know how it goes about its work, really, behind the scenes. And that's been a critique of the court. And this... There's no transparency in this either. There's no way to tell even whether a justice has violated the code, at least until a ProPublica story or something comes out about it. So there's just no way of knowing still whether they're following this or not, unless we see, oh, they went to the Federalist Society gala. Yeah, and this research by ProPublica and others is extraordinarily exhaustive. There often are going to be gaps in the information that they can't possibly fill, and there's no official that has any capacity to investigate anything that could fill those gaps. So, no, this is not at all transparent, and this is going to lead to further erosion of public confidence in the court. Things of this kind that came out in earlier generations ended justices' careers. Justice Abe Fortas was forced off the court for involvements with potential litigants that were far thinner than the ones we're seeing right now. And members of both parties and justices across the ideological spectrum insisted that he step down, and he ultimately did. We've completely changed our practices And our ethics standards are not keeping up. So at the end, it seems to me like they sort of took everything back. We take it back because they had a line from Justice Tom Clark in 1969 that judges must bear the primary responsibility for acquiring appropriate judicial behavior. And then the court added, the same is true for justices. So it's up to us. So all that we've just said means nothing. Yes. And... It's certainly true that the Supreme Court is and must be the primary um, guardian of its ethics, but it does not have to be on an individual judge basis. If I'm trying a court case in federal district court and the judge assigned to my case does something unethical, uh, something indicating uh, an improper bias for the other side, I can ask that judge to recuse. And if the judge refuses, I can go straight to the chief judge and ask them to order that judge to recuse. The way this is set up, it's entirely up to the individual justice, and there's no procedure for investigation, no procedure for preventing presenting the facts to the other justices, no real opportunity for the other justices to act collectively to uphold the court's ethics. This is 
putting the Supreme Court's ethics at the lowest common denominator. So this has been years in the making. We've heard about they're working on the code. They're working on the code. Senate Democrats had open debate in a committee, Judiciary Committee, about subpoenas for two allies of the court's conservative justices who funded or arranged for luxury travel for Justices Thomas and Alito. Does it seem pretty convenient that this is coming out now? Are they hoping to stop with this code of ethics any congressional action? And should they be allowed to? Well, the, the court's announcement of this essentially presented as a PR move. They say that they've always been bound by ethical standards and this isn't changing anything, and that the only thing they're concerned with is public views, which they characterize as misunderstandings, that they are behaving unethically. So I don't think we should think of this as changing. This is certainly a response to their public relations problems and attempt to head off congressional action. I don't see congressional action as terribly likely in the short term, because for now, most Republicans have been rallying around the justices rather than holding them to the same standards that they held Justice Douglas and Justice Fortas. But this is certainly an effort to deflate the momentum of a push for ethics standards. I'm wondering if this code is worse than no code because it gives the justices sort of cover, the opportunity to say, well, we put out an ethics code, so Congress stay away and public rest assured that we are following ethics rules. I think it could go either way. People could be confused and thinking that this is a real ethics code. On the other hand, it puts their beliefs out there in public. It makes very clear that they do not hold themselves to the same standards as lower judges. And if that's their position, then we're entitled to debate that and decide whether we think that's acceptable. Democratic Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, who has been a vocal critic of the justices, said this is a long overdue step by the justices, but a code of ethics is not binding unless there's a mechanism to investigate possible violations and enforce the rules. The honor system has not worked for members of the Roberts Court. You mentioned how if some of these scandals had happened in the past, there would have been so much pressure on the justices to correct things. Now pressure has just gotten us this toothless code of conduct. And I wonder if it's because there's no pressure from Republican lawmakers because they're so happy to have a court finally with a supermajority of conservatives. And Democratic lawmakers might feel the same if the court had a supermajority of liberal justices. Liberal justices and justices across the ideological spectrum were all in favor of getting rid of Justice Fortas, even though he was very liberal and was replaced with a conservative by Richard Nixon. And the liberal justices, Brennan and Marshall, pushed Justice Douglas off the court because they thought he didn't have his faculties at a proper level. Republican justice didn't push Chief Justice Rehnquist off the court when he was at least as impaired as Justice Douglas was as an end. So it's not completely symmetrical. There are good government values that have more salience at the moment with Democrats than with Republicans. There are plenty of ideological Democrats that would 
put anyone up there and not care about the ethics at all. But there's a part of the Democratic coalition that's willing to be assertive about ethics, and I'm not seeing that very much among Republicans today. I always appreciate getting your viewpoint on these kinds of issues. Thanks so much, David. That's Professor David Super of Georgetown Law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. I just heard loudness, almost like thunder. Tiki torches still on fire. We're being thrown in our direction. Was promises. Bashed to our group with their shields. I heard the sound of metal hitting bodies. Robbie called me out of the blue and said, do you want to sue the Nazis with me? I've been a litigator in New York City for more than two decades. Charlottesville actually shocked me. I wanted the toughest possible people to help expose that. This was really a conspiracy. It wasn't some sort of freak accident where this car ran into people. There was overt planning how to prepare for violence and make this appear as if it's self-defense. The HBO documentary, No Accident, chronicles the civil case filed after the deadly Unite the Right rally in August of 2017 in Charlottesville, Virginia. It was filed against white nationalist leaders and organizations on behalf of plaintiffs who suffered injuries while peacefully counter-protesting. Joining me is the lawyer who is co-chair of the civil lawsuit that successfully held accountable the white supremacists responsible for the violence in Charlottesville. Karen Dunn, a partner at Paul Weiss. She's written an op-ed because in observing the protests happening around the U.S. today related to the crisis in the Middle East, she noticed a disturbing theme. Karen, before we get to your op-ed and today, to put it into context, tell us about the lawsuit over Charlottesville. Well, shortly after the events of August 11th and 12th, 2017 in Charlottesville, Virginia, which was the violence at the Unite the Right rally, we sued 24 groups and individuals who we contended were responsible for uh, planning and executing the violence that weekend. And the suit, um, you know, proceeded uh, slowly at times, partially due to the difficulty in collecting evidence from defendants who did not always respect the rule of law, um, and partially because of COVID. But Uh, Ultimately, we were able to bring the case to trial. Uh, We tried the case in late 2021, uh, and it resulted in a verdict against each and every one of the defendants of liability. And specifically, the verdict was they had engaged in a conspiracy to commit racially motivated violence. The jury couldn't reach a verdict on two federal conspiracy charges over whether the organizers conspired to commit racially motivated violence or whether they had knowledge of it and failed to prevent it. Do you have any feel, I assume you talked to the jurors after the trial, why they weren't able to reach a verdict on those counts? 
We actually were not able to talk to the jurors after the trial, so we're never going to know the answer. You know, our working theory is it was some sort of compromised verdict to get out by Thanksgiving because there was not uh, a heck of a lot of difference between the state claims um, where the jury did find liability and the federal claims where they didn't. And so with the state claims, they found uh, that there had been a conspiracy with every one of the defendants to commit racially motivated violence. Um, and they awarded compensatory and punitive damages, which is very significant. Um, and then they hung on the federal counts brought under the KKK Act. And so there's not really, uh, you know, legally, it does, that doesn't really make sense. Um, but mm-hmm. that's, that's what they did. <laughs> so there must have been some reason for it. Juries don't always make sense. So um, <laughs> right. what happened as far as collecting damages? Did you collect any damages? Yeah, so the damages are still being litigated because under the Virginia state statute, um, there's a, a cap as to uh, as to damages. So we're still litigating that, and that will probably take some time to play out. One is serving a life sentence for murder. Is there money to be had? So um, we don't know is the short answer to your question. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the individuals probably do not have very much money. Um, the groups is a better question. We, we sued a number of uh, white supremacists and neo-Nazi organizations, um, and they, they likely do have some money that the individuals wouldn't have. I mean, one of the goals behind the suit was, you know, not just to go after Fields, who, of course, was the individual who drove the car into a group of peaceful counter-protesters and killed Heather Heyer and injured so many other people, um, it was also to go after the leadership of the movement. And so that was the very interconnected web of individuals and groups who we sued. Forgetting about the money, what impact right. do you think the trial has had? Has it helped to quell white supremacy in, in any way? Yeah, so I'll just take this in a couple parts. One is I think we know that there was a deterrent effect of the case. So Charlottesville, that everyone's aware of, was actually called Charlottesville 2.0. And that's because there had been a prior event called Charlottesville 1.0. And the idea was to keep coming back. Um, There also had been, prior to Charlottesville, a different event uh, in Berkeley called the Battle of Berkeley. And the white supremacists called Charlottesville the Battle of Charlottesville. So the idea was to have these battles as one catalyst to an eventual race war. That is one of the goals of some of these neo-Nazi and white supremacist groups. So we know that the lawsuit had a deterrent effect because there would have been more of these events and they just did not happen. We also uh, had a deterrent effect on the defendants in the case who were, uh, you know, really leaders in the movement. Um, That said, I think it's pretty clear that these organizations, uh, many of them still exist. Um, and that the movement is, you know, continues to exist. We didn't, you know, wipe it out with this lawsuit, obviously. And I think that the movie, which is called No Accident, it was released on HBO on October 10th, so just very recently. I, the movie is a very good tool uh, for people to see what are the motivations of these groups and also what are the tactics of these groups. And I think eventually, you know, the effect of the case and the movie will be to raise awareness so that people understand that these groups are coordinated, that they are connected, and that they're very tactical. Uh, And so, you know, the awareness of that, I think, will help to 
reduce the amount of extremist violence that we see. So, Karen, you recently wrote an opinion piece. You wrote that white supremacists and neo-Nazi groups are showing up at pro-Palestinian rallies in this country. First of all, how did you discover that? Well, I looked on the Internet, uh, mm-hmm. for one, and, you know, there are white supremacist groups that are really exploiting the divisions that have come to the surface uh, following October 7th. And so they are uh, showing up at events um, and they're also, you know, sort of uh, celebrating what happened on October 7th. And I looked back at um, what some of the defendants in our lawsuit uh, had to say. And, you know, almost immediately after October 7th, many of them chimed in to commend what had happened uh, and the, the attacks perpetrated by Hamas. And so one of the things that we learned um, as we went through the mountain of evidence that we unearthed leading to the violence in Charlottesville is how motivating uh, to the white supremacist movement anti-Semitism is. And so the recent, you know, dramatic uptick in anti-Semitism, anti-Semitic incidents are up something like, you know, almost 400 percent. Uh, presents a real opportunity for mobilization of the white supremacist and neo-Nazi movements in America. One of the things that we learned in litigating the case in Charlottesville is that anti-Semitism is used um, by white supremacist groups and neo-Nazi groups tactically, um, which is to say that these groups hate all non-white groups and their supporters, but they hate the Jews the most. And so there's actual um, guidance put out uh, to white supremacist groups that they should use anti-Semitism um, to rally the troops to the cause. What can be done? What should be done? I think the reason to talk about these issues and to write about them is to really raise awareness. Um you know, we've obviously seen a historic uptick in anti-Semitism in the United States that resembles something more, uh, you know, out of Europe of a different time. And there may be a temptation on the part of some to think about anti-Semitism as a problem for Jewish people and only Jewish people. But what we saw in Charlottesville um, was anti-Semitism, Jewish slurs, you know, the chance Jews will not replace us, the chance of blood and soil, um, to really mobilize a movement that is filled of racial hatred for all non-white groups. And that resulted in planned violence. Uh, extremist violence that, you know, did not discriminate between one group or another. Uh, It was really aimed at all of us and certainly, you know, destroyed a lot of lives, uh, injured a lot of people, uh, terrorized a college town, um, and affected our whole country. And so the lesson that I think people ought to take from this is that this isn't a problem just, just for Jewish people or just for one group. This is a problem for everybody, and we have to be aware of that um, because if we're not and these sentiments are allowed 
to fester and grow uh, and spread, that is going to create opportunities for violence that will affect everybody. And the key thing that I'm trying to explain is that there is a coordinated, connected, and tactical movement uh, who wants to take advantage of those opportunities. Thanks for being on the show, Karen. That's Karen Dunn, a partner at Paul Weiss. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.